Let's start with a little a nigun. We'll start with a, a more upbeat one today. This is uh, from one of the Hasidic groups. You know, I always wish we had recordings of uh, traditional nagunim that women had sung. <laughs> because a lot of them, they feel like not gendered nagunim, but a lot of them, that feels like a very male nigun, right? Not necessarily, but I mean, obviously, but I mean, I, I, I'm sure these women who were, you know, um, at these communal gatherings were singing nagunim, and I don't think we've, uh, we were able to preserve those. Um, but thankfully, in our era, we have lots of great women uh, musicians. But um, do, do you agree that that feels like a very kind of male energy to that nigun? No? Cheryl says no. Andrea, what do you think? Well, maybe back then. I mean, in this, in this age of the gender spectrum and that women are being encouraged to be more, you know, out there, yeah. maybe and having more drive. So it could go either way, I think. Okay, interesting. Cheryl says no. Lauren says yes. Either of you want to explain? <laughs> yes, I, I, I agree. I just picture a bunch of uh, Hasidic yeah. men, right. you know, clapping and singing and dancing. And, right. and if you if you listen to actually so Israeli music by Nomi Shemer and, and, and some of the others, there is a softer sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the only thing that we see usually is uh, Hasidic men dancing and clapping. <laughs> right, so, right. Uh, uh, you know, that just because there's high energy doesn't mean that the women in whatever tasks they were performing or getting ready to perform or whatever didn't have the same high energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's great. And, you know, it, it's always nice to offer a disclaimer of diversity. Of course, men can sing soft melodies and of course women can sing intense rile up melodies. That said, you know, it really, you, you, you it, it's hard to imagine uh, that, that a Jewish male musician coming up with, it's like, I mean, you would say it, there's a female energy to that and it took the world by storm. I mean, if you look at the two greatest Jewish spiritual mu musicians of the of the twenty the latter twentieth century, you have in the traditional world Karl Bach and in the liberal world Debbie Friedman, and the energies couldn't be more different. It couldn't be more different from the types of music they're putting out in the world. In any case, if you go to a if you go to if you go to and women here would, never would have been able to go to this, um, but if you went to a Rebbe's Tish, and any Hasidic group, you have this Rebbe sitting up at the table, and then all these Hasidim giving this like intense nigger and they're trying to entertain him because they they really view in a messianic kind of way that that it, it's if this through the sphere out the rebbe is the channel to god I mean, that feels like a christian idea right we as jews we say you don't go through anybody you pray directly to god right but they really believe that the rebbe is the channel which you access god and so they're trying to entertain him to arouse him if you will through their kind of intense melodies to uh so that so that he can have a kavana towards god and they can kind of kind of ride on his coattails is that what you say coattails ride on his coat you know fly on his coattails so <laughs> in any case um oh. yeah surely um yeah yeah, yeah. whatever um right. yes whatever is good <laughs> i think that the women were busy cooking baking <laughs> cleaning washing, taking care of the kinderlock, yeah. they didn't have time to sing and dance. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, um, you know, yeah, I, my Shoshana and I were just talking about that with the kids two nights ago. It's the, it's the old story of the cone, st the stone cutter. Tell me if you've heard this before. They go up to the first stone cutter. Yeah, Cheryl, what I'm going to say. Yeah. They go up to the first stone cutter and they say, what are you doing? And he says, uh, I'm cutting stone. They go up to the second stone cutter. So what are you doing? He says, I'm making a living. They go up to the third stone cutter. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a palace to, like, to make the world beautiful. Something like this, you know. Cheryl, is that the version you know? Yes, but I, I just wanted to comment on 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 the other, uh, on something else you said about the- Okay, so, um, just, so just one thing about the stone cutter before you- you say that so okay. so the the idea there is like whatever you're doing you can be doing a task i mean and the task can be i'm just doing the task or i'm doing this because it's my job or you can be like i'm doing this because i see a bigger picture of what i'm doing and i think that that in the hasidic world if a woman was cooking she wasn't just like i'm cutting carrots again she's like mm -hmm. i'm making a shabbos meal to like okay. bring the shekhinah down and, and the man who was singing to the hasid to, to the Rebbe, he's like, I'm not just like standing here singing with a group of men. Like, I'm like bringing the messianic redemption. So the power of the Hasidic world, whether you were cooking, cutting carrots, or you were singing this nigun, whatever, you know, is that you thought you were doing something big, right? You thought you were, whereas in the, in the Lidfish world, like that didn't have this grandiose, you know, vision, you're just like, okay, there's the Talmudist who's doing something real. I'm just cutting logs, you know? So that was one of the great revolutions. Anyways, Cheryl, yeah. I was just going to say um, the, about the energy that you're uh, talking about with the, the men, you know, bringing down the Messiah, etc. You know, um, at weddings, when it's the um, obligation of yeah. the, the men and the women to entertain the bride, well, it's the men who entertain the bride and groom, but it's the men who entertain the men and the women who entertain the women. It's always very, very high energy. So... Is oh, that the same reason? Right. Yeah. That oh, that. Oh, that's very. That's very interesting. Right. So, so it's so it's interesting. So, as you know, there's all these details to fulfill supporting another. When we say bikur chalim, support the sick, we don't just mean like show up and say something nice for five minutes. We actually mean doing some concrete things. Do you need me to sweep your floor? Can I get you some water to your bed? Like, I need to do some things to support the sick. It's not just showing up. Showing up, of course, is the biggest part. So, too, to bring joy to the bride and groom doesn't just mean, like, you show up at the wedding. You have to do some things to, to help them experience more joy. And generally, that is thought, as Cheryl's saying, is, like, doing some wild, funny things. You're going to jump out into the dance circle with a funny hat on and do a funny dance. You know, <laughs> some of us might not have the personalities that that feels easy, easy or comfortable to do. Others might feel like it's great. But, yeah, the energy is very high. The energy is very high there. Um, and I wonder if that's, yeah, it is very similar, Cheryl. I think that's a great point. The kind of the energy that is brought forth, um, that's kind of, uh, very ecstatic, um, that we experience, yeah, at, at the Rebbe's Tish or at, 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 the, at the wedding. Um, because you can't imagine someone doing something kind of in a wedding space, calm and quiet to bring joy. That feels like the day after the wedding, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've um, if you've ever been to um, segregated weddings, yeah. if you notice, so on, on the girl on, on the girls, you feel like a girl <laughs> on the women's side. So they're doing dances they learned in school, and like the most wild little get is somebody will go and bring like a pot from the kitchen and bang it, yeah. and it's more songs like you know David Melech Israel, yeah, where yeah. the men's side. <laughs> is like way more, you know, um, like the, the Nick and you sang and, and made way more wild with yeah. dancing. And yeah. it, it's just, it's just different. That's all. Yeah. Not, yeah neither I, is you know, better, neither I, is worse. Just different. I, I, um, I, I really love uh, personally both spaces. I, I, I love the egalitarian space where everyone's just singing and celebrating together. And I love when men feel they can unleash a little more because it's just a male space and women feel they can unleash a little more because it's a women's space. And, and it's great when it goes both ways. You know, I've been at some Orthodox weddings where then they break the boundaries. It's supposed to be separate. And all of a sudden someone throws off the machitza and all of a sudden the, the floodgates are open. Oh, what's going on here? And you see, you know, these people become upset or uncomfortable. And these people are loving it. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, it's all, 
it's all uh, it's all interesting. But <laughs> um, you know, I, I in fact I do remember one case where a very uh, a very orthodox rabbi who was very uncomfortable that they broke down the machitza and they opened up the egalitarian dancing, you know, because you know, leading to mixed dancing, that's the worst thing that can ever happen, right? <laughs> and and yet he um, he believed that the mitzvah of that bring joy to them was much more important than, than what he viewed as a, a taboo of the mixed dancing. And so I, I remember watching him jump into this mixed dancing space in a way that if it was in the press, he would have hated. But he, with his full rigor of dancing, because he knew that he still had to fulfill the mitzvah, wanted to fulfill the mitzvah, even in that space. And so, uh, but I'll, 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 I'll tell you one funny story before we go on. So, you know, one of the things that happens at the Hasidic Rebbe's Tish is called Shirayim. Are you familiar with this phrase, Shirayim? Okay, so this is, this is very, very strange if you're not familiar with this. But um, the, you, just as you pray through the Rebbe, the Hasidic Rebbe, you, you pray through him because he's the Tzadik as part of the Sfirot, so too you want to receive, not only give towards him, but receive from him. And so the Rebbe eats a meal. It's very strange. The Rebbe's eating a meal at the Chassan's Tish, and all the Hasidim up on bleachers, they're on thousands of them, up on bleachers, like in a stadium-like setting. They are watching him eat his meal. But then here comes the, here comes the great moment where they're all going to line up, and the Rebbe's going to put like one kernel of his food into their hand that they're going to eat, right? And so one time they're carrying this Rebbe's platter past me at this in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it's like it's like midnight on Shabbos. It's like midnight on Shabbos, and they pass me with this platter of meat, and a little piece of the fat of the meat falls off the plate onto my shirt, and I didn't know anything about the shirayim that they thought this was like holy food. And I go and I like flick the food off my shirt onto the ground. And the the the, the around me are like, no, they like dive onto the floor to try to get this little piece of food that had fallen off. So, you know, I was like, where's Waldo? Everyone's over there and like as a chassid. And then there's me in the middle wearing my like red shirt. And, you know, my, I had big blonde hair, and you know, no black hat. It was a, anyways, a funny thing. All right. Anyways, I got a little fun poll here. I know uh, Eileen was with us yesterday, so she already saw this poll. But here's your one poll question for the day. Just, uh, if you're not hungry already, you're going to get hungry. Ah, if I could choose one food to eat today, I would choose a Hanukkah latke, Pesach matzah with crane, horseradish, Rosh Hashanah challah with apples and cinnamon, or Shabbos cholent. Maybe you would choose none of those things. But if those are your only four options, make your choice on which of those four you would choose today. Give you a few seconds. Everybody make your choice. Okay, let's see the results. Let's see what people's appetites are today. We'll get the results in a moment. Here we go. Hanukkah Laka, 18%. Matzah with horseradish, zero. Rosh Hashanah challah with apples and cinnamon, 73%. Wow. And I guess I'm the only voter, 9%. I represent the full 9% of Shabbos Cholent. I'm revealing my vote. The Hanukkah Laka was two voters, I guess, because it's nine times two. But I'm the one Shabbos Cholent. I bring the Cholent to work throughout the week. Okay, good. Now that you're nice and hungry for some of our Jewish cuisine, we'll jump into the Malacha 31. Mechateich. The 31st Malacha is Mechateich. The cutting of an item to a specifically desired size. Friends, today we're going to talk about historical consciousness and um, how we shape historical consciousness. In the Mishkan, one engaged in mechateich when cutting the animal skins to desired sizes to sew them into the coverings for the Mishkan structure. The malacha applies to all items with the exception of, as usual, food that will be eaten on Shabbat. Right, you cut your food into a shape or whatever. This type of cutting involves using a tool in a normal manner. Matter, manner, manner. Okay, um, cutting a piece of paper with scissors is problematic, as is cutting foil or plastic wrap on the on the built-in serrated blade. It is not about using one's hand. During the Exodus narrative. God is the primary actor, and the Israelites are in many ways passive recipients of divine directives, right? But with the construction of the Mishkan, there's a significant shift in 
agency and the divine human relationship. The Torah tells us that God appointed Betzalel as the architect or maybe the general contractor of the Mishkan project. Betzalel was not simply to follow a divine plan for its construction. Rather, the verse reads that Betzalel is to shov shavot, to think thoughts. That is to say, while Betzalel was to follow a, a pre-designed plan, he was given license, even a mandate, to decide how to go about, about accomplishing this. The building of the Mishkan was to be a collaborative effort between Betzalel and God. Human beings are given license to consider how to accomplish the mission of representing the divine on the earth. Okay, here's a quote from Parshat Truma from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. The Mishkan was the first thing the, the Israelites made in the wilderness. And it marks a turning point in the Exodus narrative. Until now, God had done all the work. God had struck Egypt with plagues, taken the people out of Egypt, divided the sea. Now God instructs Moshe to make something for God. But this wasn't about God. This was about humans and their dignity. God gave the Israelites the chance to make something with their own hands, something they would value because they had made it. For the first time, God was asking them to be active, to become builders and the creators. Okay, so it's just like with a child, we give experiments and opportunities for the child to exercise their autonomy. We don't want them to create, build a house, but we want them to make a drawing, right? There's going to be little experiments as children mature in their actors as creators. So too, God was the actor of creation. God was the actor of Exodus. And now all of a sudden, God is giving a task. Uh, I don't want to say for the first time, but for, for really the first collective time, you're going to build this Mishkan together. It's interesting to note the shift from the brutal, monotonous slave labor to using those same skills to create beautiful things. Consider that an enslaved Hebrew might have to endure brutal, monotonous labor while creating beautiful things such as the Egyptian pyramids, or as was the case for a French-trained chef owned by Thomas Jefferson, culinary delights. A slave laborer brutally beaten for the slightest mishap or perhaps laxity is much less likely to create the desired beautiful product than one given the encouraging environment and space to do so. The philosophical field of aesthetics emerged in the 18th century and currently involves two major approaches, the philosophy of beauty and the philosophy of taste. The philosophy of beauty and the philosophy of taste are the two fields of aesthetics as it emerged. Initially, taste was something taken for granted as resolved through reason. This might seem strange to us in the 21st century. One can objectively, perhaps rationally, determine what is aesthetically good. But then came, quote unquote, the immediacy thesis which states that it is not through reason that something is determined, but rather through taste itself. Rationalists objected. They conceded that a meal would be quote-unquote good based upon taste, but not and not merely reason, but not so with a play or with a symphony. Whether a play is good is not merely about taste, they said, but it is also about higher rational judgments based on reason. Again, they're saying a meal, because of the immediacy of the experience, right, is about taste. But the rationalist said the higher forms of, 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 uh, of taste that are not immediate requires judgment and ration rationality. That is because a meal can be tasted and judged immediately, whereas a play requires a process of reasoning that is not accessible immediately. The Scottish philosopher David Hume argued that taste in aesthetics is unlike the five external senses. He explained that since it was an internal sense, it, re it, re it relied upon existing operations in order for beauty to be seen, embraced, and understood. Consider a movie critic. Who do you trust more? Someone who's not sophisticated, but who likes movies? Or someone who is a very sophisticated movie critic and analyzes films 
and has seen dozens of films and is a part of film process groups and film festivals and someone who um, reads books about the arts, the arts and has all different types of views. Whose view do you trust? Do you, do you think films are merely about taste like a meal? I like it. I don't like it. Right. I, I can't tell you why I like a burrito or why I like salmon. I just like it. That's my taste buds. Right. There, there's no analysis here. Right. Is that what a play or a film is? It's about your taste buds, or is this about some intellectual project? When experiencing art, should we experience it intellectually or sensually? A brief review, for example, my, my, my friend and colleague, AJ Frost, he knows a lot about com comics. I know nothing about comics, right? So if he and I read a comic book, are we equals? Are we equals in kind of our analysis of this comic, right? Or are we really entering from a very different a very different place. So who kind of, who, you know, what, what do we bring to the table? When experiencing art, should we experience it intellectually or sensually? A brief review of modern art history reminds us of how different thinkers have thought of this question. In the 18th and 19th centuries, romanticism grew and art shifted away from classical representation toward expression, right? Romanticism grew and art shifted away from classical representation toward expression. Moving into the 20th century, there was another shift from expression toward abstraction and deeper appreciation of the form. Further into the 20th century, there was yet another shift where abstraction was abandoned and more philosophers agreed that art should have no tight definition at all. This de-definition of art as suggested by philosopher Morris Weitz, was built off easier understandings of the philosophy of art, excuse me, off of earlier understandings of the philosophy of art and language developed by the Austrian-British philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Let's look, okay, now we're going to make a little pivot. Let's look toward Indian philosophy. You probably didn't think we were going there. <laughs> Let's look towards Indian philosophy, too often ignored in the West. There is more to learn from Indian philosophy beyond the most commonly quoted idea. What is that? I think it's pronounced Ahimsa. Is that how you pronounce it? Ahimsa. I, maybe I'm ju Judeifying it too much with the Chet. Uh, it's Ahimsa instead of Ahimsa. But <laughs> uh, the philosophy of Satyagraha. Is that how you pronounce it? Satyagraha. Okay, nonviolent resistance popularized by Mahatma Gandhi. Many different philosophies emerged from India called darshanas in Sanskrit, while, which include both Hindu philosophies from the Orthodox schools, right? The Hindu schools are called Orthodox schools, and the non Hindu philosophers from the heterodox schools. The Hindu schools draw philosophical principles from the ancient Hindu sacred text, the Vedas, right? So Hindu is Orthodox, which is to say, they're about text. One of the six Astika Orthodox schools of Indian philosophical traditions is yoga. In the second century, the Yoga Sutras set the goal of yoga to be the quieting of the mind in order to attain a detachment, what they call cave alya. Another one of the schools was Nayaya, <laughs> Nayaya, <laughs> which suggests a philosophy that learning knowledge, a system of logic, will lead to liberation from suffering. Other orthodox schools in, in, in Hinduism include Vaisheshika, Purva Mimamsa, and Vedanta. Aside from the orthodox Hindu schools of Indian philosophy, there were also four heterodox non-Hindu schools, which move away from the dogmas of the texts of Hinduism that emerge as Karvaka, developed on materialism, skepticism, and even atheism. All right, so let's unpack that, unpack that a little bit. Hinduism, polytheism, many gods. Right. If you ask the cab driver, polytheism is real. If you ask the Hindu scholar, he says, no, no, it's really monotheism. The many gods have one godhead. OK, but then if you go to the Indian philosophies that emerge from the non-Hindu schools, the heterodoxies, then we're dealing with materialism, skepticism and atheism. Forget the polytheism or even the monotheism. We're moving towards atheism of ancient Indian philosophy. So it's important to mention people hear Indian, they think Hindu. Right? Hindu is the Orthodox side, and there's this other side. We often look towards the Western philosophy for Judaism's understanding and expansion, perhaps because influential Jewish thinkers lived in Europe or were there or, or in, in the Ashkenazi world or themselves influenced by non Jewish Western thinkers. Right? We think of our engagement with Western philosophy, 
right? We think of, of Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe. We talk about uh, American influence, uh, British influence. But the Mishkan was built in a desert on the border between the Western and Eastern worlds. Monotheism spread West with Christianity and Islam. But Eastern spiritual traditions of various theologies continue to spread East. The study of aesthetics would be a great place to begin learning how to integrate from both hemispheres. On our aesthetics-related theme of cutting, as it relates to historic traditions, consider this form, excuse me, consider this from American historian David Nirenberg's Magisterial Historical Survey, Anti-Judaism. Okay, this book written uh, in 2013, if you haven't read it, only read it if you like academic style books. But anti-Judaism is one of uh, the, the, the very important works of the last uh, decade of, of reading. Uh, here's the thesis of the book. The thesis of the book is that more than any other ideology in the world, ide um, that Judaism was used as the counter ideology, which is to say that, that, um, uh, uh, that political philosophies, religious ideologies, economic theories were built as an anti-Judaism, right? We're building this in, in contrast to the Judaism. Now, he didn't call the book anti-Semitism, he called it anti-Judaism to demonstrate how Judaism was used as the opposing idea that we're up against, okay? And he shows it how dominant it is through every society, through every historical era, um, as, as the contrasting contrasting idea. So here's one quote from Nirenberg here. And I interviewed him. I interviewed him maybe about a year or so ago. You can check it out in our VBM Learning Library. My 3,000-year history will perhaps offend most against the current conviction, as Michel, as Michel Foucault famously put in the late 1960s. History is for cutting. That's why that's our connection to cutting here. History is for cutting. That conviction is strong among historians of ideas, some of who go so far as to suggest that to guard against false continuities, we should treat texts and ideas, especially the most classical and seemingly enduring, as speech acts, their meaning to be interpreted only within the immediate historical context of their utterance. Okay, so let me just unpack what he said so far, for those who haven't thought about kind of uh, intellectual history for a while. Uh, this idea um, that um, there are people who want to make history look really clean, love continuity. Here's Judaism. Here's the ideas we've always held and always believed. Okay. Now, once you get into the nuances, you see those are false continuities. So um, he wants to show in every historical context how the ideas that are taught are a product of their current historical context and are continue to be reshaped in the historical context and that you, you can only have this clean narrative if you embrace false continuities, okay? Certainly, the now back to Nuremberg, certainly the task of cutting is critical. You have to cut history into pieces, right? The mid 20th century, for example, experienced the depth of horror that can be produced when nations fantasize their ancestry in the past. But no amount of cutting can eliminate, eliminate the historian's need to generalize. That is to create connections and continuities between non-identical things. And cutting also has its risks. In the 16th century, Montaigne mocked a similar tendency in his age, citing words of the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca. Cut anything into tiny pieces, and it all becomes a mass of confusion. Nor are the risks only epistemological, for fantasies of freedom from the past can be as dangerous as fantasies of continuity with it. Okay, let me give you let me give you a, a few uh, false narratives, even though they might feel compelling. Um, uh, you remember that book, uh, the uh, the stone and the sword. What was that book called? The stone and the sword. Okay. The sword um, and the stone. The sword one, and the stone. The stone well, and the sword. The one okay. future so, king. Okay. Thank you. So it's like a thousand, a thousand, a thousand pages, whatever it is. And you never want to overgeneralize a book. But here's the basic thesis of the book, which I never read, but I read reviews of it. <laughs> so I feel authorized to say something about it. Thesis of the book is that the North was more successful than the South, right? There's global poverty in the global South. The North is more successful, right? You could also divide that by race, more white folks up North, more black folks down South. And his thesis of the book is why is that? the exploitation of natural resources. The North had more resources, natural resources than the South had. 
and so enabled a whole wealth of development in the north rather than the south, and then the resources in the south were then be, uh, exploited for number number reasons. It was all about the access to these natural resources. It wasn't about the creativity of the, of democracy or the birth of capitalism. It wasn't about the brilliance of this religion or that. It was about resources. Okay, so that's one narrative, and that's a flawed narrative. It's a very compelling narrative, but it's a flawed. Here's another narrative. All of history is is fundamentally about racism, about white people oppressing black people. Okay, now of course. There is a, a, a huge narrative about racism, but um, we can poke holes in that. Here's 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 a Zionist false continuity of narrative. Um, uh, the Gentiles persecuted Jews for two thousand years, and then we had a state and we were safe. That is a very common Zionist narrative. Say Jews are only safe with a state, right? Um, and if without a state, you're persecuted. Now I, I I'm someone who loves that narrative because it. It's mostly true. It's mostly true, right? Jews were persecuted for 2,000 years. And with a state, we have autonomy and self-determination and an army, and we protect ourselves, and there's a lot of security. And yet, as uh, Bob Chazen, who I like to quote on this issue most commonly, and I know, uh, uh, I think it was, Stan, I think Stan studied with Bob in college, <laughs> um, um, that, um that actually there were many exceptions to that. There were many periods in Jewish history where Jews lived relatively comfortably outside of persecution, like the golden age of Spain. Of course, that also crashed and burned. Of course, they were still second-class citizens. Of course, it was still bad, but nonetheless, it wasn't purely a history of persecutions. And we know statehood is also complicated in regards to conflict. And that's also not without its own uh, <laughs> problems. Okay, so I say all this to say, not that, the North didn't exploit the South, not that white people haven't persecuted uh, black folks, not that Jews haven't been persecuted and that the birth of a nation state is a good thing, but simply to say that an overarching arching meta narrative of history is going to have false continuities. That's the threat on one side, Nuremberg says. The threat on the other side is if you cut things into only little bits, you look at one text outside of its context, you look at one era outside of its broader context, then that's also false. That's also false because it doesn't have any of the continuities that give context to um, to that bit of reality, that bit of reality. OK, and one of my concerns in America to today is when activists on any side fight for the moment and forget the broader reality. Well, let me give an example of that. Um, people who forget the value of free speech and they condemn free speech, they condemn free speech because they don't like the speech of the moment. Okay, Shkoya, like that you don't like the speech of this moment, but zoom out, what happens to a society when we don't have free speech? Let me give another case. People love democracy when democracy produces the result they want, right? Democracy, let's celebrate democracy at work. Look what it gets us. Do people love democracy if they believe they couldn't win? If democracy meant you, were, you would never actually get the people you, in power you wanted right, in democracy. Would they still be supporters of democracy, or does that lead to revolution? Does that lead to revolution? And so um, sometimes we have to support a process or an integrity of principles beyond the moment, and you need historical context. Okay, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm moving forward here. So how will we choose to cut, quote-unquote, cut and tape and glue, if you will, a, to construct the Jewish intellectual history? How will we construct and glue and tape a Jewish intellectual history that has integrity together. Who are the Jews? Friends, who are the Jews? Who are the Jews? How would you answer that? Who are we as Jews? And what are the sources of our continuity that truly stand uh, against the test of, of continuity? What are, the, what are the principles that a, a liberal, secular Jew in San Francisco holds in common with a Hasidic Jew in Borough Park? What are the, what are the pieces of continuity that a, a, a capital C conservative Jew in Scottsdale, Arizona, holds in common with a capital C conservative Jew in Germany in, in, uh, in uh, the, the late 18th century, right? What are the, what are the things in common that Rava, Rava from the Talmud has in common with Maimonides, 
right, in Egypt of the 12th century, right? What actually are these sources of continuity? We have to ask that question because we should wonder who the Jews were 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and even 100 years ago and today. How can we speak with authority about any ideas being uniquely Jewish, given how ideas evolve and how they were and are so deeply influenced by surrounding cultures? And how many Jews at every given time had alternative perspectives and philosophies to the very ideas that quote-unquote won out in the history books? There's an the, so so uh, you know we talked about this stone cutter earlier, and the first stone cutter who says, um, "What are they doing? They're cutting stone." The second stone cutter who says they're just doing their job to earn a living, and the third stone cutter who says he was building a palace. The first two we might imagine were not so pleased with their monotonous, grueling work. The third, on the other hand, we can suspect was more invested and prouder, having zoomed out to perceive a great vision. So too with our own lives, whether in a given context, we function as leaders, as followers, or as observers, in order to imbue what we do or what we see with the meaning that it deserves, we must zoom out and tell the full grand story of who we are, where we have come from, and where we are headed. Yet at the same time, that story must be honest, accessible, and engaging, and must at the same time account for our relationship with the collective. <laughs> okay, there's a lot I want to say about that, but I want to move forward. But uh, around the Haggadah, the Haggadah and how we do storytelling as Jews. Storytelling about, about then, about now, and everything in between. When one is cutting some parts of the history, some dissenting voices, and some versions will inevitably need to be cut out. The actors must make hard choices to cultivate a collective vision, and historians must struggle with understanding it all. How did or do Jews engage with Canaanites, Romans, Zoroastrians, Greeks, Indians, Spaniards, Poles, and other Americans? The story is, of course, complicated, but we will need to weave together a narrative and then cut some versions out. Just as important as that story, though, is the story of the future. Will it be filled with despair and cynicism? Will it be taught as a cyclical repeat of our past? Or can we inspire a new chapter? On Shabbat, we reflect on mechatech, on cutting and shaping. What parts of our personal narratives shape our respective current consciousness? What parts of our collective narrative, both national and Jewish, shape our future? On Shabbat, we learn to let go of what is holding us back and to recommit to our most true principles, making them manifest in this fragile world with beauty and fortitude. Okay, friends, I'd love to hear from you on any of this. Uh, and I see there were some chats over there, which I will read as somebody starts talking. Shamili Yeshkelech on the, the very last comment. That's beautiful about Shabbat. And, oh, um, thank you. Thank I, you. My thoughts are just, it's, it's so important not to forget history and not to cut it out. And, and to remember that there were good times and bad times. When I asked my dad about, you know, why didn't you leave Krakow? Why, why didn't the family just get up and go? Um, he said, who could believe it? We, we were there for hundreds of years, as far as we know. Who could have envisioned what would have happened? Even though he, the anti-Semitism was horrible, even in the best of times in Poland. So, you know, I think both Jewish history and also our Torah, it, if you cut it out, it, you've got to know where you come from. Or you're going to make mistakes in the future, right? Isn't yep. there? Yeah, and Lauren, you know, um, you know, uh, we've talked about this a few sessions ago, but just to just to raise this question again because of what you're sharing, is there is this, uh, there has been this trend in, uh, in 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 aspects of Jewish education, particularly Sunday school, for for quite a while now, which is make Judaism fun and happy. Right. And I'm not again, I'm not in the war against fun and happy Judaism. <laughs> um, and yet, how do we also um, 
uh, tell the true, well, tell tell the 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 full and 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 more true dimensions of uh, of Jewish history. That the the only goal can't be pride and joy, as important as those are. And of course, there's stages of of learning as well. But yeah. how do we balance both having that pride and that joy and that security, right? Also with that sense of of um, historical consciousness, which you're flagging there as well which we have to understand. And, um, and that's also complicated because um, many of these programs are also trying to promote civic engagement and um, not resentment towards Gentiles. And the more you teach about the complexity of Jewish history, the easier it can be to have a, a psychology of insecurity, a psychology of resentment, a psychology of isolation. And we're trying to teach the kids also, oh, you're different. And you're a part of society and we could trust society and build allyship and build relationships. And that's a lot for kids to kind of figure out and kind of juggle together, right? I want to teach my kids, your grandmother's Christian and she celebrates Christmas. And isn't that wonderful? You can participate in that. And I want to teach you Christmas is a dangerous, horrible thing. It's a horrible thing because Christians had Christmas to kill Jews throughout centuries, and so how am I going to balance this? Your grandmother's Christian and it's wonderful. You know, we're going to celebrate Christmas with her in, in a way that's going to honor her. And I want you to understand a little bit about why Jews don't do Christmas. One, because of belief. And two, about what this historically has meant for Jews, right? To, okay, now I don't have to say that to the four-year-old, right? I can wait till they're teenagers. <laughs> but okay, thank you. Okay, someone else. So I, I'd like to make a comment on um, the idea of um, history is um, for cutting. I, I'm not a great devotee of Foucault, uh, but it's really um, this false continuity. I feel like we've had to come to terms with a false continuity that we've had about um, uh, racism in this country. You know, the narrative has been in the history book in that chapter, there was slavery, it was horrible. Reconstruction came, that was also really bad. And then we had the civil rights movement. We all marched, look, here we are on the bridge. We had legislation and now it's been all great. But we know now we're having to come to terms with, it was not all great. And that we have been in this kind of myth uh, that we arrived at a place where it was not functioning our society. Part of that narrative was, well, look at the blacks. They haven't achieved their genetically inferior or they're lazy or whatever kind of fit that this where we thought we should be and we aren't. So now we're in this great upheaval of having to come to terms with white supremacy um, and cutting that narrative in a sense and really looking at the true narrative of what happened and where we are. Yeah, excellent, excellent, Andrea, thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's, that's very relevant. Is it thank you. history? Yeah to give us a lesson so we know what's transpired in the past and hopefully we do not repeat that in the present or future. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep, exactly. So Eileen, yeah, thank you for that is, is to learn of those. So one of the things that scares me, the, the um, scares a little too strong. Okay. One of the things that keeps me up around what we often say around the Shoah is um, you know, uh, here's what happened building up to Nazi, the power of Nazi Germany, and we should recognize those signs today to combat them before they're too late. Okay? I think we all agree with that, right? Okay, tyranny, the breakdown of democracy, um, you, know, you know, fill in the blank, you know, limitations of power, of, of freedoms, um, you know, and, you know, a whole host of, of, of things that emerge. And yet, the part that scares me the most about that is not that we will fail to identify those same signs. They're pretty easy to find. Everyone saw in the last four years some very dangerous things that emerged and was able to connect the dots in history, right? What scares me even more than that, even though that's really scary, is that throughout history, traumas and tyranny emerge in very different ways, which is to say future tyrannies that will lead to traumas will emerge from a whole different past than ones we've seen in the past. And so we're looking for the moment that represents 1930s Germany. Here's what happened. Here it is. Here's what happened. Here it is. And actually something different is happening now that we can't easily identify because it doesn't have a historical precedent. 
right? And how do we take that as seriously also, right? When we don't have a clear historical precedent to point to also. And so we have these boxes we want to point to. Oh, here is Nazi Germany, 1933. Here is white supremacy, Ku Klux Klan. And if it doesn't look like that, like that exactly, some people want to push it in the box anyways, and some people don't know how to exactly label it. And so we, we want to talk about history to not repeat it. And yet, what do we do with the threats that emerge that don't have that, um, also don't have that historical precedent? Rabbi Biller, you were going to share. Yeah, uh, yeah thanks. Uh, I have two thoughts. Um, one is that all of us are looking for kind of eternal truths and things to stay steady. But, you know, respectfully, I think only, I'll say it nicely, it, it's foolish to believe that there will ever be, you know, one truth that, that will always work. So it's like we want it, and it's a good thing to want it. And it also, it's foolish to think that things won't evolve. So that's one thought. My other thought, I'm always fascinated in the morning with the prayer where we say, you know, praise you God who you create light and you make darkness and you make order out of it all. So to me, that's like, there's the components of dark, there's the components of light. We're all trying to make sense of it. You know, we like, we want the pieces, we want the context, we want the eternal truths. Uh, really only God can make complete sense out of it. To us, it's a lot of contradiction. And we have to struggle, but we'll never come to, you know, it's like Einstein. There's never going to be a unified theory, likely, but you still want it. It's okay to want it. Uh, that's uh, party. That's, uh, yep. Amazing. Thank you for that. Just uh, one, one thought there. Um, yeah, I read recently, and make of this what you will, whether you like it or don't like it. It talked about the about kind of the naivete and the foolishness of the left and the right, and it said the right leaves um, believes uh, falsely that the past was just. They want to go back to that past that was great and just, and the left foolishly thinks that a perfectly just society can be achieved, and is disgruntled in the belief that that it's not there. As if like it, uh, that you, some utopia can be achieved, like Mar like a Marxist, a Marxist kind of idea, if you will, like a con that the, it, once you have this communist society, everything will be healed and will be fine, and we're mad until we have that, and so um, and so the right li lives with that that false narrative, and the left lives, lives with that false narrative, and um, and, and that, that kind of jumped out for me as you were saying that first bit there around kind of you know what narr what narrative and what myths going along this theme of what myths do we continue to hold. Um, and how does that, how does that give us kind of a toxic energy also constant disgruntledness because that utopia isn't here and, and a constant disgruntledness that we're here. We're not in the past. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to continue. If you don't mind, I just want to add one please. thing. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I was responding to someone on Facebook recently. They were talking about what's natural for men and what's natural for women. And, and I wrote to them like. The, the arrogance of us to think that the creator is as limited as our thinking is. You know, there, there's something about thinking that we're going to get it and what we, that if we understand a certain way, therefore it's true. It's just uh, something to think about. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. So which is healthier, the myth of the right or the myth of the left? <laughs> well, uh, let me throw that question back to the group. Any extreme is dangerous. We should, be, we should remember Rumbum's telling us to go the middle way. Any extreme. Look at anti-Semitism. You get anti-Semitism on the right get anti-Semitism on the left. The best is a, is a middle way. And, and, and believing, as you said, utopia, like a right-wing utopia, left-wing utopia, any of it is a fanaticism that will eventually lead to disaster. You know, so what do we do with, like, take, like, use as a thought experiment, the anti-Semitism, right? And let's say, um, you know, I mean, uh, um, the idea that anti-Semitism will never go away. There's no, or, or, and, and racism. I mean, I mean, I, any of these socials. The idea that there's no legislation that's going to wipe it out, 
There's no kind of ideal society that will have somehow figured out to not harbor hates towards minorities, right? So what do we do with that reality? What does that reality fill you with? Is it just despair or is there something else that that historical truth? Or do you disagree? Do you think we could achieve a world that like, like John Lennon, imagine this world that we're going to build, you know, the six, in the 60s, they believed it. I think some of them did. Do you know, in the, I'm, I'm a baby boomer and, and I, I guess there's a few others here. And I think you agree <laughs> with me. We, we had felt that, you know, got rid of the Vietnam War. Um, civil rights legislation, thanks to Lyndon Johnson. We, okay. we were going the right way. Yeah, we were going in the right way, yeah. and 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 and, the, and then I felt when Obama was elected, wow, this is like a great tycoon for all all the disasters that had befallen, um, and it ain't so. It just wasn't. And there was a time in the '60s when being Jewish was really cool. Fiddler on the Roof was on Broadway. Jewish comedians on the Ed Sullivan show. It was like cool to be Jewish. And now we're finding extreme anti-Semitism, both sides, you know, and you got that Michigan Congress talking about the Jewish laser. I mean, Gewalt, how, how far does it have to go? Did yeah, anyone get totally. to play with it? Yeah, I know. Can we play with the Jewish laser? Um, so I don't know. I've, I've, I don't want to be in total despair, but I lived through a time where I thought, aha, we're on the way, less racism, uh, less anti-Semitism, human rights are looking better, you know, right, a mixed right, race, right. dark skin. And to be president. sure, Lauren, I mean, the same thing happens in Israel. Uh, um, now, of course, there's many different ideologies in Israel, but take, take the socialist, um, you know, uh, pioneers, if you will, right? To them, like the Zionist dream more or less died. Right. For them, the Zionist dream was not what, what some would describe as today, a state for security, a state for refugees. Now, I'm not critiquing those two ideas. I, I, uh, I, I, I like the idea of a state for refugees. I like the idea of a state for security. But their dream was a state for the flourishing of culture, a socialist, I, I, a socialist dream. And then Israel became capitalist. And then the kibbutz movement collapsed. And then the... The arts and culture scene is a more complicated thing beyond beyond uh, what we can look at now. But they look at, and then the antifadas happened, and the left all moved right, um, and nobody's even talking. Nobody talks about peace anymore. I mean, they they dream of peace, but nobody works towards peace. I mean, it'd be ridiculous. You're like a naive fool if you talk about a peace process, you know. And so that dream also, like like the '60s in Israel and the '60s in America, was a time period, and then those illusions. And now where are we? Where are we? And the progressive world, by and large, believes in the MLK idea, MLK idea that the arc of history bends towards justice, right? It doesn't even have to be empirically proven, historically proven. There's an ideology that is rooted. Uh, we're headed forward, right? Yes, there'll be a setback, but it's always headed forward, right? And if you look at history, that's, that's, that is the ideology. And the conservative ideology is, is, um, is the opposite, is that we're headed precisely in the wrong direction. And actually, this is, you know, when we talk about unity and coming together and building an American discourse that's healthy, rather than talking about, okay, you're pro-life and you're pro-choice, now let's talk about it. That's not going to go very far, probably, probably, right? right? Interesting to talk about how, like, this idea might be abstract enough that people can kind of talk. How do we understand the trajectory of history? How do we measure progress? How do, why do you think as a, someone who's naturally conservative or as a conservative ideology, why do you think that um, history is on a steady decline? And to be sure, in Jewish thought, we have the same idea also. One is that we're headed towards Yemei Mashiach. We're headed towards the Messianic era. And the other approach is Yeridat Tadorot, that we are in a steady decline from Sinai. Back then, they had the truth that Sinai now we don't even know anything about God or Torah. We're getting further and further from truth. Whereas, the, again, the messianists think, whoa, we're getting closer and closer. So this is, plays out in theology. It plays out in politics. It plays out in Israel. plays out in America. And I think this is one of the crucial kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, points to, in terms of figuring out where we are. What about the... Um... When you're speaking of history, what about the attempt, let's say you mentioned San Francisco, a very liberal city, where they're now going about renaming public schools. 
So they're erasing the public school name. Lincoln is going to become Lowell. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's rewriting. Is that the way to send us on the correct path? Is it to, to reset the path by re and as opposed to teaching the children? Because that my sister-in-law actually wrote a letter to the editor to the Chronicle yesterday about this very thing that the most depressing thing about this renaming is that it's being done by educators instead of using it as an opportunity to, to teach why this is so instead let's let's erase it all and call it something else right okay great great so okay i'm sure there's a range of views on this here um i'll, I'll kind of share a few of the views that are out there which you're, you're you're aware of and then i'll share my own and then i would love pushback from and disagreements so um I think most of us can agree that that two extremes won't be helpful here. One extreme, which would be actually um, erasing history, where people have no clue what happened, right? Because we won't even talk about it. We won't share it. We won't talk about it, right? And this, this is very uncomfortable, because are we willing to read the books of Ku Klux Klan people, of systemic, you know, people who perpetuated systemic racism? Do we want to read Mein Kampf? Hitler's works, right? Right. Do we want these books burned, right? Or do we want to keep that history alive? Okay. Then the other side that says, keep everything up in society because it is history. We can't remove it. I'm, I'm in, it's, it's always fun to say you're in the middle space, right? So however you construct the, I'm in the middle space. <laughs> and, 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 and my, my view of naming is a consequentialist approach, which is, does that name help to cultivate virtue among people in today's society, right? And if this was a Confederate leader, that is not an, a person or an image that will help to construct virtue among Americans of the 21st century. And so it is worth us taking down this statue. It is worth us renaming this building towards names that will inspire virtue. I want Rosa Parks on the $20 bill, right? I want Rosa Parks on there because that can cultivate a historical consciousness. It can cultivate a, um, a, a virtue and leadership among people. Now, what I don't want is that we, that we allow lawlessness where people are gonna tear down stuff and burn it and throw it away. Let's put this, I, this stuff in museums. Let's put this stuff in the books. Let's have people learn about about confederacy. Let's have people learn about hate and understand these things, but let's not celebrate it within society. Now, there's different degrees of how far people will go. George Washington, he owned slaves. So do we name, rename Washington State? Do we rename Washington, D.C.? Right the, Now, the, here we get into problems of, of moral relativism based on historical context. I'm not willing to disregard an American leader because they were an anti-Semite 200 years ago. Everybody was an anti-Semite, right? And it was normal, right, to, to be an anti-Semite. I also don't want to throw out every racist who was a great American hero, right? Because everybody was a racist. Like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going to give a 21st century, first century, or you're a sexist, right? In 1900, you wrote something saying women were intellectually inferior. Yeah, everyone thought that. Even most of the women thought that. Right. And so, of course, it's wrong. We should point out those ideas were wrong. And yet, like a little humility about the historical context that people were operating in, we, we would have no Torah if we if we only read the Torah of people who weren't racist and sexist and, and fill in the blank. We'd have no Torah to study. People held the ideology of their time. So how do we hold on to the humility of historical context and the idea that we want to cultivate virtue by who we celebrate today? And so. This is very difficult because we have a lot of people on the far right screaming, history, keep it intact and honor the great people of the past. And we have a lot of people on the left saying, tear it down, tear it down. And, I, and, and that left idea resonates far more with me than the right idea. And yet I think there's some nuance to kind of, uh, to kind of maintain there in terms of what the project is and how it gets done in a way that's, that's helpful and educational. So uh, disagreements, does anyone want to push back on something I shared there? It's a big topic, I know. Shmuley? Yes. Yeah. Um, so so I, the last few things you've said, that whole question and the push back and forth of the right and the left and, you know, and how we do it. So if I could bring everything back to, to what you're teaching. So for all those questions and using this like, 
how would you bring it back to Shabbat and what right. Shabbat's teaching us around cutting and all these issues? Okay, amazing, amazing. So good, and that's a great place to end on in our last minute. So I, so what I think Mechatech can, can help us to focus on on Shabbat is the idea that we are partners with God in molding our consciousness, our personal consciousness and our collective consciousness. And a big part of that intellectual and spiritual project is what we allow to be in and what we cut out. The narrative we tell, the narrative we tell about Jewish history, the narrative we tell of our life is my narrative, I'm a victim, right? Whether objectively I was a victim or not, or am a victim, is my narrative of my own heroism, right? What is the narrative of my life? Because most people do have a meta narrative of where, of who they are and how they got there, and who is to blame and who is to praise for how they got there. And yet, how do we expand our Jewish intellectual history, our American intellectual history, our personal narrative in a way that is honest? To the fullness of it, honest to the fullness, of it, but also one that is generative to how we cultivate a future. Generative. So we do have to balance the fullness and the mechateh, the cutting out of parts that are not serving us. Here is a narrative that is true, but it's not serving me. I need to cut it out of my experience because it is leading me to live with entitlement and resentment. And, and hate. And these are major transformations that people have. Think about a survivor, any type of survivor, and the narrative they live with. And yet some who, who transcend that narrative which was true in order to live with a new narrative, which serves them in, to live with more fullness, right, than that previous narrative, which is not to say it is, it is more true, but it is more serving the life they want to live. Have a great day, friends. See you next week. Beautiful. Much love and bracha. Thank you.